Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this, our fourth webinar in a series looking ahead at, at policy issues in the new Biden administration and the new Congress. I'm Adam White, the director of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, and it's my pleasure and honor to welcome you and our speakers to today's conversation. The discussion today is police reform and civil rights in the Biden administration. Obviously, that's a very, very broad topic and a very significant topic. We could spend many webinars just unpacking everything that falls within the the, uh, the coverage of civil rights. But here we've gathered together three speakers, all focused on various aspects of the issues that we group together under civil rights. And I'm looking forward to a wide-ranging and, and, and good conversation. And you'll be able to join it too. Feel free to submit questions through the Q&A function. I'll get to as many questions as I can. Now, President Biden, before he was even president, when he was president-elect Biden, made clear that police reform and civil rights were going to be top priorities for him. They were made prevalent or prominent on his transitions website. And on his first day in office, January 20th, he began signing executive orders focusing on those issues. An order on racial equity, a, uh, an order on uh, anti-discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And a few days later, followed through with further executive orders on subjects of civil rights and discrimination and policing. We were to come from the White House and his agencies, and so we're very lucky to have three experts to take a look at what might come from the new administration and Congress and what should come from the new administration and Congress. Now, I won't introduce them all at once. I'll introduce them when it's her or his turn to speak. And we're going to begin today with Ronald Sullivan. Uh, professor Sullivan is Harvard Law School's Jesse Clemenko Clinical Professor of Law, and he directs Harvard's Criminal Justice Institute and Trial Advocacy Workshop. Outside of the classroom, he's an active litigator and an advocate on issues of mass incarceration, uh, and he negotiated, among other things, a settlement for the family of Michael Brown in a case against the city of Ferguson, Missouri. Professor Sullivan, thanks for joining us. Why don't you lead things off? And thank you so much for having me. So first and foremost, I appreciate uh, that you're putting on uh, this webinar and giving us the opportunity to address these important issues. Um, I want to use uh, just a few minutes here to uh, chat about um, uh, mass incarceration and ways in which police reform can uh, aid in the ending of mass incarceration. So uh, at the start, it's important to note that uh, most agree that uh, mass incarceration in this country is a problem. Uh, the data are clear. Uh, we incarcerate more people than any, than any country in the developed world. Uh, our criminal code is, is more capacious than any other country in the, um, in the, in the developed world. And uh, the rate at which we put people in jail and the things for which we put people in jail are deeply uh, problematic. Um, I've been um, working on a project recently looking at the roots of uh, mass incarceration and have come across some scholarship that's, that's quite interesting. Uh, it turns out that there are some uh, religious roots to uh, our carceral system. Uh, that is to say, uh, the Christian idea of redemptive suffering uh, was present at the beginning of the institution of the um, of the carceral state. That is to say, this notion of salvation through suffering. Um, that in and, and, and sort of the state was put in the position to uh, 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 to, to to punish 
uh, people uh, in a way that would lead to their uh, redemption. Um, now, this certainly is not at the forefront of anyone's mind, but it's become baked into our system in such a way that it's become a civic faith that uh, that that our version of punishment uh, is 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 a good thing. Um, now, scholars over the years have challenged this notion and quite successfully, and we know a couple of things. Uh, one, we know that after a certain amount of time in jail, any other period beyond that has a criminogenic impact. Every criminologist and sociologist worth her salt agrees on that. We also know that uh, people of a certain age uh, tend to uh, not reoffend, uh, at least not at levels anywhere near people of, of, of other uh, uh, ages. So we, we are learning a lot about ways in which we can reduce prison populations. Uh, one way we can produce, reduce rather prison populations uh, is to uh, look at uh, who we arrest, uh, how we arrest and, and why. So this is where uh, the police function comes in. The beat officer, the officer on the street who makes the initial decision to arrest has more discretion than any actor in the criminal justice system, almost unfettered uh, discretion, and this is something that we ought to think about. And I want to um, I want to make three points uh, here. Uh, first, in terms of dealing with this sort of discretion, we as a country have to come to the understanding that race insinuates itself into every aspect of our existence, including policing. That color has become a proxy for criminality in the minds of uh, many throughout the country, and that includes police officers, black and white officers alike. Uh, We have to actively go into police uh, agencies and engage in robust uh, anti-bias programs. Uh, uh, People have to come to recognize uh, biases that they uh, may hold and engage in, in, in conduct that, um, that, that does not give expression to those uh, biases. Um, second, um, we have to reimagine uh, the uh, grounds for which we put people into the criminal justice system. Here, I'll briefly mention jurisdictions like uh, Oregon. So the Eugene, Oregon Police Department, as many of you know, um, uh, are, are mavericks in terms of a, a new program where they pair social workers uh, with police officers and they go and respond to events. One issue that um, has received a lot of attention, uh, we know the issue, we haven't dealt with it effectively, is that we use the uh, we use jails uh, to solve uh, mental health issues. So one benefit that the Eugene, Oregon program has is that uh, it can identify mental health issues, decouple those issues from uh, actual police issues, and begin to divert people from the criminal justice system to the mental health system or to some other um, uh, system. Uh, even more, the these uh, social workers have shown that they can oftentimes de-escalate situations that will not result in an arrest at all. 
Now, um, so so that's a, a, another mechanism that we think uh, can reduce the numbers of people who are um, who are being uh, arrested. Now, the last and the most difficult issue is to how to formally deal with police discretion. So, um, uh, we historically. Uh, the beat officer, the arresting officer, had almost unfettered discretion in terms of uh, who she or he may uh, arrest. Um, that that discretion uh, tended uh, to be exercised in a way adverse to the interests of marginalized communities. So then we began to cabin uh, the discretion of police officers. Um, we have some unintended consequences, some negative externalities that have resulted from even the cabining of discretion. So you have these situations where uh, now certain policies demand that someone goes to jail that day. Someone has to be arrested in certain uh, circumstances. And even when those circumstances uh, uh, don't, don't seem to warrant an arrest, uh, police officers uh, feel constrained, not even feel constrained, they are by rule uh, constrained. Here I'm thinking of a, of, of a case, uh, uh, a Georgetown law professor just wrote a, a great book uh, very recently where she, uh, uh, she, she took a leave from Georgetown and went uh, and joined the police force, the Metropolitan Police Force in D.C., and actually went to the academy and trained and so forth. And she was giving some of these situations. Uh, you know, one situation, uh, 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 two two sisters, an older sister and a younger sister. Uh, one was a nurse. They got into a little spat about something. Uh, you know, no nobody was injured. No one was hurt. Uh, but the police were called. And based on the um, domestic violence law, somebody had to get arrested. So this the police determined that the one of the sisters, the nurse, was the uh, initial aggressor in this confrontation, and and this nurse had to go to jail for the first time in, in her life. Um, there seems that there's got to be a better way to deal with a situation like that. Uh, so um, I hope we have time to discuss uh, further and in more detail, but I wanted to at least sketch out uh, some thoughts about the ways in which uh, reforms to policing can aid in uh, the reduction of mass incarceration. Thank you very much for all that, Ron. I should have mentioned in your introduction, I think the Huffington Post referred to you as the Muhammad Ali of, of mass incarceration, which is pretty pretty high praise. <laughs> Thank you very much. Our next speaker today is Rachel Harmon of the University of Virginia. She's the law school's class of 1957 research professor of law, and she directs Law School's Center for Criminal Justice. She's a leading scholar on policing and the laws of police regulation. In fact, she's the author of a new first-of-its-kind book titled The Law of the Police. She previously served for eight years as a prosecutor in the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Professor Harmon, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I think Professor Sullivan has highlighted some of the most pressing policing issues that we're going to be considering and dealing with over the next few years. 
I guess I want to consider two other questions on the table, which is what is the Biden administration likely to do, especially in the short term, about policing? And what else might the administration do? Uh, that is, what it, what is it signaled an intention to do? And then what else can and should it do to improve policing, especially in the short term, even before we tackle some of these long term issues um, in terms of police reform? I think the most important takeaway, I would say, would be this. Um, police reform, as you noted in your introduction, Adam, is likely to be a priority for the Biden administration. And the, and the administration is going to take a more aggressive approach to reform, certainly than the Trump administration, and probably even than the Obama administration. I mean, it's going to be open to some ideas that were hardly on the table four years ago. But despite the protests of this past summer, I don't think we should expect a radical new approach to federal police reform. Instead, I think the administration's approach is likely to look at least in form a lot like the Obama administration's updated for the new times that we're in. Now, how different is it going to be from the way Obama administration approached policing? I think that's a bit of an open question, but you might think of two competing forces that are pushing on reform efforts by the administration. On one hand, there's this dramatic new national push for change. Now, Many communities, especially communities of color, have long called for reducing the harms and racial justices in policing. But really, for the first time, there is broad popular support for dramatically changing the police. And ideas like rethinking first response or defunding, even abolishing police departments are on the table in some communities. Now, on the other hand, President Biden, unlike President Obama, was long before his presidency, a long term ally of law enforcement. That doesn't mean he doesn't believe in the need for reform. Many law enforcement officials agree that policing needs to change. But he does have commitments to specific institutions, to reform paths that could restrain some approaches that might otherwise be in the mix. So what will these competing forces mean? Well, so far, President Biden has rejected one path for police reform. He has said he's not interested in defunding the police, and he's expressly supported four others. On the campaign trail, first, he suggested that he would order a commission on policing in the first 100 days. We don't have a lot more detail than that right now. Second, President Biden indicated that the Justice Department will increase civil rights enforcement. And specifically, the administration is going to turn the lights back on in the office that sues police departments that engage in a pattern or practice of constitutional violations. That's a program that the Trump administration had largely shut down. We should, so we should expect a bunch of new investigations and lawsuits along those lines. Third, President Biden has indicated that he wants to reinvigorate the community-oriented policing services office, which is generally known as the COPS office. That's a component of the police department that helps local uh, police departments on community policing and reform and gives them grants to hire new officers. And finally, President Biden has indicated support for federal legislation that would create national standards for police use of force, including a ban on chokeholds and mandate data collection from local police departments. This would be a more significant change than the others, but it also in some ways seems like the least likely to happen given relative political gridlock in Congress. Now, 
What else can or should President Biden do? I mean, that's a big subject, maybe more than I could address in a few minutes. Um, but among other things, I think there's going to be or should be a substantial federal commitment to rethinking first response and addressing racial disparities in policing. Let me mention three steps I think President Biden could also take right away. They're less major reforms, but there are ways that we could almost instantly improve policing in this country. First, he could get the federal law enforcement house in order. There are more than 80 federal law enforcement agencies. They range from as big as ICE and the FBI and DEA to as small as the Supreme Court police and my personal favorite, the National Zoo Police. But rather than serving as a model for accountability and transparency, currently, Federal law enforcement agencies are national laggards. They don't make accessible even the most basic information, like their use of force policy or other critical policies. The complaint and disciplinary procedures are largely hidden from view. They provide much less data than many police departments on their uses of force, on their stops, on their arrests, including demographic data that would help reveal racial disparities. And for many of these agencies, even finding out the number of officers or an org chart is nearly impossible. That's ridiculous, and it could be fixed easily by executive order. Uh, second, while the administration will should eventually review all federal programs that affect policing to determine whether they incentivize unfair or excessively harmful policing, two stand out as in need of immediate change. One is the Defense Department program that distributes military equipment to local police departments. There have recently been some uh, legislative changes to this program, but more needs to be done. And the second is the the Department of Justice's equitable sharing program, which basically pays local law enforcement to engage in asset forfeiture. I think the administration should impose additional restrictions on these programs, even as it's thinking over the long term about its next steps. And lastly, even before it reviews federal programs in depth in policing, I think the Biden administration could make sure that federal programs don't undermine local efforts to control local policing. So no department should get money or power or equipment from the federal government or participate in a federal task force without express approval from a local city council. That's another reform that could easily be adopted by executive order. So as we think about the longer term in police reform in the Biden administration, I think it's helpful to remember that the president basically has four big mechanisms of influence here. He could write executive orders instructing agencies to act differently. He can implement federal programs in line with his policy preferences, for example, setting priorities or conditions for discretionary grant programs, at least within the bounds of the authorizing statutes. Third, he can influence Congress through support for legislation and through the president's budget. And fourth, he can work through his appointees to implement his priorities and preferences in agency decision making. As we go forward, I suggest watching each of these mechanisms to see what comes next in terms of the uh, administration's priorities on police. Thanks. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much. And our third speaker today is Professor Gail Harriot. She is a member of the United States Senate, uh, not Senate Commission, United States Commission on Civil Rights. And she's a law professor at San Diego. She writes and teaches on issues of civil rights, law and history, affirmative action, employment disc uh, discrimination, and other subjects. 
Professor, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you. Um, We've been talking about policing and incarceration. Let me say a few words about a somewhat um, related topic, uh, and that is school discipline. Uh, It's popular these days among left-of-center civil rights advocates uh, to use the term school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, They use it to describe what they perceive as the root of the criminal justice problem, and that is disproportionate punishment of African-American students by school teachers and principals. Uh, Some, including some in the Biden administration, have gone so far as to argue that African-Americans misbehave in school no more often than white or Asian students. They just get punished more and more harshly. Some even argue that African-Americans are overrepresented in prison precisely because of this unfair treatment that they have received in school, hence the term the school-to-prison pipeline. The evidence on rates of misbehavior Um, Even self-reported evidence is to the contrary. Uh, That is not to say that race discrimination is not a factor at all, but it's not the dominant factor uh, any more than it's the dominant factor for the reasons for for disparities based on sex, which are much greater than the disparities based on race. Boys get punished more in school than girls. Surprise. Um, I believe um, that looking at school discipline is primarily an issue uh, about race. Uh, has been a big mistake. Uh, Alas, judging from the appointments President Biden uh, has made, um, it's a mistake the Biden administration is about to make. Um, Like many civil rights policies, this one will mainly hurt uh, the people that it's designed to help. School discipline is an inherently local issue. Uh, It is best handled um, by people who've seen the facts on the ground. Uh, Supervision by federal bureaucrats uh, in any but the most extreme cases has a tendency to be counterproductive. Uh, When schools can't maintain order in the classroom, students can't learn. Uh, Unfortunately, maintaining discipline in inner city schools has turned out to be somewhat more difficult. So federal policies like this end up disproportionately harming students who live in the inner city, which is mainly minority students. This isn't a new issue by any means. The Obama administration made school discipline policy a centerpiece uh, of its civil rights policy. Its Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education issued a guidance uh, during that administration uh, purporting to interpret Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, That guidance warned school districts uh, that disparate impact in school discipline based on race Um, could result in costly investigations and a cutoff of federal funds. Uh, This interpretation of Title VI was not exactly new. The Carter administration uh, had taken this position too, Uh, but the Obama administration was the first in two ways. Um, That is, it was the first to push this position since the Supreme Court uh, had decided that Title VI is definitely not a disparate impact statute, but left open the question Uh, of whether regulations promulgated pursuant to Title VI could be based on disparate impact liability. That's an issue that I wish that we could get a Supreme Court decision on uh, because I believe it will, or at least should, uh, come out against the Obama-Biden position, um, at least as it applies to the school discipline um, situation. I'll say a bit more about that if I have time here. Uh, Second, the Obama administration opened an enormous number 
uh, of these investigations, 300 some. Anne Arundel County, Maryland, Hillsborough County, Florida, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Wake County, North Carolina, Waukegan, Illinois, Troy, Illinois, Minneapolis, um, and Rochester, Minnesota as well, and many more. Uh, bear in mind what is meant by disparate impact liability in this context, or for that matter, in any context. Disparate impact liability demands not just equality of treatment, uh, but equality of results. Those two things are at odds with each other. For liability under a disparate impact theory, it is unnecessary to show or even believe um, that the inequality of results is due to the conscious uh, or even unconscious um, discrimination uh, by the authorities in, in, in question. It's enough that more African-American students uh, are, are punished and disciplined than white or Asian students. Once that's established, it's up to the school district to show that this is somehow necessary. Uh, showing uh, that it is, is, is not the result of discrimination uh, is not enough to show that it's not necessary. So if you think about it, you'll realize you know, how the story plays out in the real world. Um, almost everybody has had experience with distant bureaucracies. Um, even when their edicts are reasonably well nuanced, they don't tend to make it to the folks on the ground in that nuanced version. Um, so don't discipline minority students unless it's necessary is interpreted by school district administrators as don't discipline minority students unless you are reasonably confident that you will be able to persuade a federal official whose judgment you have no reason to trust uh, that it's necessary and justified. That in turn is communicated to school principals as don't discipline minority students unless you jump through, unless you and your teachers jump through the following procedural hoops necessary to, to show to some future federal official whose judgment you have no reason to trust um, that it is necessary and justified. Uh, that then gets communicated to the teachers as just don't discipline so many minority students. It's just gonna create giant hassles for everybody involved. Um, and that's the nature of bureaucracy, it's, it's inevitable. Um, not surprisingly, reports that treating white or Asian students more harshly than African-American students uh, have been popping up lately as they did during the Carter administration. And the whole thing is just heartbreaking. Um, in California, just a few years back, educators concerned about lagging, and, and lagging minority statistics um, in education had a bright idea. You know, let's ask students, let's ask students, you know, what's causing them uh, to perform poorly uh, on academic tests. And so they did. And one of the significant answers they got back was, I need quiet. Uh, the classroom is, is, is too noisy. I can't concentrate. Um, so as I explained in my 2019 article with Allison Solman, um, that Obama-era policy, uh, which is all but certain to be repeated in the Biden administration, uh, is not supported by the law. If you carefully you know, read the regulations under Title VI, which were passed way back in 1966, um, you'll see that they don't actually create uh, this kind of disparate impact liability. But even if they did, even if they did, um, they would be beyond the scope and power of the executive branch to promulgate. Um, in that article, I analogize Title VI rulemaking power to congressional power uh, under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment in promulgating statutes uh, that enforce 
uh, the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, those have to be congruent and proportional to an actual problem. Uh, I don't think that that um, a disparate impact in school discipline um, policy has a chance um, of, of of passing that that standard. Um, the only hard part, I think, and it's a very hard part, um, is getting the issue before a federal court, finding a school district in our woke times uh, willing to challenge uh, such a guidance. And I will leave that. I'll leave that there. Uh, and we can go on to, to a, a broader discussion, I hope, uh, of civil rights and, and, and policing policy. Well, thank you, Gail. Thanks, everybody. Uh, again, remind the audience, anybody who would like to submit questions, and we already have a couple coming in, just do it by the Q&A function. I have a few questions of my own, but maybe before we get to that, I'll let the speakers all uh, have a chance to, to maybe respond to or elaborate on anything that's been said so far. Maybe we'll just go in the same order, if that's okay. Uh, Ron, do you want to go first? Oh, Ron, you're muted. It's okay. With with apologies, I didn't want background noise to distract any of my uh, any of my colleagues. So uh, thanks for the opportunity. This was uh, uh, interesting to to hear um, uh, some of the specific uh, ideas that people have with respect to uh, this new administration. Um, so I'll make uh, uh, two quick points, and and because I don't want to talk too much, uh, give time for Q and A. Um, but one, um, I want to, one thing I want to point out is that, uh, uh, here there's an epiphenomenal problem that I think that we have to keep our, 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 our heads around. Uh, so there are a, a million different certain interventions, uh, that we can think of and they're useful and, and so forth. Um, but there's an epiphenomenal uh, issue that comes into play. And the notion here is that, um, uh, that citizens in this country, underrepresented and minority citizens in this country, um, are faced with a set of conditions where many of them have to choose from among a set of really bad choices. And, and, and we have to, we, we have to deal with that. And that's a, a, a sociological issue, a political issue, and it's uh, broader than uh, reform, police reform. Uh, so that's something I want us to keep into um, into the back of our mind. Um, I think we could have a whole panel on second and final. I think we could have a whole panel on the uh, prison to pipe, uh, uh, the the uh, school to prison pipeline issue, uh, which I think is a, is an important issue and a, and a fascinating issue. And I just uh, put forward one uh, study that uh, uh, pushes back um, a bit on the uh, on the claim that uh, race is not involved in uh, these sorts of discipline decisions, at least not in a measurable way. Uh, uh, I wasn't uh, prepared for uh, that this particular discussion, so uh, forgive me that I don't have the precise uh, site. But there was a Yale uh, study, Yale Child Center study, I believe it was, uh, oh, five years ago or so, um, where uh, the investigators uh, measured the teacher's eyes. And the notion was that if you ask a teacher, uh, hey, you know, do you discriminate against black kids in your class? Nobody's going to say, of course I do. Uh, and if they do, then, you know, they ought to be uh, out of there. Uh, 
Um, but this study measured their eyes and, and when there was a noise or disruption in the class, um, and, and the, the people, the teachers didn't know that this is what the investigators were, were actually measuring. Then their eyes, uh, went to the black kids in class, uh, first. And, um, that's useful information as we think about the ways in which unconscious bias may, uh, impact, uh, decisions. So, uh, you know, I, I agree with my colleague that we have to be careful about um, making uh, claims without empirical evidence. Uh, but I put forward um, uh, other evidence that tends to uh, push back on the on, on the claim that uh, we, we we shouldn't uh, that that race may not play as big as a role in school discipline as um, some think. Thanks, Ron. Rachel, do you have anything you'd like to add? You're also muted. It's okay. Apologies. I guess the only thing I'd say about that, uh, the comments so far, is uh, that they suggest that both within policing and outside of policing, no matter what your perspective is on the precise policy uh, approach we should take to problems uh, in this country, racial injustice um, is the central problem um, of civil rights uh, today. And uh, the precise policy um, perspectives that people have on handling it uh, don't erase its importance and and centrality. And I think the comments so far reflect that. Thanks, Rachel. And, And Gail, anything else? Well, I guess what I can say is like on, on the previous two, two presentations, you know, there are certainly things that, that, that everybody can agree on. Uh, when we're talking about police practices, um, I think people on all sides of the political spectrum can agree that police are given an enormous amount of power um, and therefore they should be watched very carefully. Uh, and I think that's a conservative position as much as it's a progressive position. Um, on the other hand, um, I worry about some of the, the rhetoric that has occurred in the last year, particularly things like defund the police and worry that this is such a, a, a time of upheaval um, that it is very likely some very grave errors are going to be made. Uh, that there's just too much silliness out there right now. Uh, I am happy that the Biden administration has taken the position that defund the police is not their idea. Um, but, you know, and basically, I think everyone can agree that, that, that the police officers, although do important work, um, and, you know, many, many, many of them are, are heroic every day of the week. Uh, nevertheless, it's always important uh, for communities to have a great deal of input um, on police policy. Uh, because they do have so much power, um, and that's important. Um, on incarceration, um, you know, I, I think everyone can agree that violent criminals should be in prison, um, and you know, that's 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 something that that we we should be able to easily agree upon. It's also true that, particularly with modern technologies, it may be possible uh, to come up with solutions to the problem of of of, of what is called mass incarceration. Um, and, you know, that's important. If there are ways to, to, to prevent crime uh, that do not involve putting people in prison for such long periods of time, uh, then I think we need to look into those. Um, and those are perfectly appropriate. Um, on the other hand, I think that, 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 um, that not enough, enough um, attention is being given to the importance um, of the great gift that we've had over the last couple of decades, and that is low, low crime rates. Um, and, and, you know, don't lose that. 
uh, that's important. Um, and I think a lot of young people these days have never lived in a time uh, where crime rates were as high as they were um, in, say, you know, the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and I don't wish to, to live in that kind of time again. Thanks again, everybody. My questions that I'll ask before getting some of the, the audience's questions, which are, are coming in, uh, there'll be big picture sort of structural questions. And maybe just beginning with the biggest structural question of all, and it's one that each of you touched on in your own presentations, is just the, the allocation of power and responsibility and accountability among the federal government, states, and, and local governments. Um, obviously, all the issues we've touched on they cut across all three levels of government, and this conversation itself is precipitated by the arrival of a new administration and a new Congress. But just speaking very generally, could could each of you maybe give a sense of how you think uh, responsibility for the issues you've been talking about are best allocated among federal, state, and, and local lines? Uh, Rachel, since you have a new book out on the subject of law of policing, I'm sure you've given this a lot of thought. Maybe we'll start with you. Well, there is no I mean, one of the things that my book does is uh, considers federal, state and local law governing the police. So there's no question that every level of government, every branch of government plays a role in regulating the police today and has done so for a long time. So sometimes people talk about getting the federal government out of this business, but they are in this business and in a big way. It's just that most of the money they've spent and most of their efforts in policing have been to expand policing or make it more effective. Um, Making police more effective is a worthwhile goal, um, but they've had far less, far smaller efforts to make policing more responsive to communities, more uh, fair, um, and less harmful. And what you see is a shift in the balance rather than uh, getting the federal government in or out of this business. They're in this business uh, as law enforcement officers and as regulators of the local police. Just maybe one more wrinkle on that, Rachel, and then we'll go to everybody else. But you see the federal government's already in this. How much of that is just a function of of legislation sort of authorizing the federal government to regulate entities that operate at the state and local level? And how much of it is a function of federal spending where the federal government's responsibilities are, are sort of accompanying federal dollars down to state and local institutions? Well, it's both. I mean, we have Section 5 powers. Enforcement of the 14th Amendment is a critical role for the federal government. It's part of the origins of the Department of Justice and certainly the Civil Rights Division. And we're not getting out of that business. And similarly, federal spending is important. you got to remember that a lot of crime issues are not solely local issues. If you're talking about drug trafficking or human trafficking or intellectual property theft or terrorism prevention, those aren't issues that any community can solve by themselves. And that means not just federal law enforcement involved in those issues, but helping coordinate and um, support local efforts in those areas. And similarly, in civil rights, this is a this is a, a, a national commitment to the constitutional level that the federal government is involved in enforcing. We also shouldn't leave out the role of states. Traditionally, we've thought of states as relatively weak actors in terms of policing reform, but local police 
get their powers from the state. States authorize the use of force. They authorize arrests and they can restrict those authorizations. And over the last couple of years, you see a rash of new new legislation out of states who are taking a much more aggressive approach about thinking about their role in regulating the police. And so I think we should be paying attention to all of those venues. Thanks, Rachel. Gail? Well, um, one thing that Ron spoke about uh, when he was speaking about situations where police um, have to arrest somebody in a domestic uh, squabble, you know, this stuff comes from federal policy and from VAWA and such. Um, And, you know, I do do not believe that the fact that, yes, the federal government is going to be somewhat involved in many issues um, that that might appear to some people to be mainly local. Uh, But like we need to have some sense and a sense of modesty at the federal level. Uh, And I haven't seen that in a long time um, in the federal government. Remember when kids used to say, don't make a federal case out of it? I mean, that wouldn't make any sense today. I mean, I bet you if a kindergartner said that to to somebody, uh, they wouldn't know what he was talking about because everything's a federal case these days. Uh, And the truth is, you know, bureaucracies um, that are distant, um, they tend to make a lot more mistakes than than, than people that are working closer to the ground. Uh, I think it's been a huge problem um, in school discipline. Uh, I believe that there is a greater role for the federal government uh, in in dealing with police issues, um, but not an infinite role. Um, and you know there have been been micromanagement from the Department of Justice um, of police um, of, of local police departments, um, and it tends to backfire. Um, and until federal officials learn modesty about this, uh, I, I I'm not optimistic. Um, but you know the thing is, we cannot run everything from inside the Beltway. It won't work. And Ron? So it's a it's a very difficult issue uh, if the question is, what's the precise uh, allocation of authority between federal, state and local? The reality is that the supermajority of the issues that occur uh, occur at the state and local uh, issue, uh, state and local uh, level. The federal government uh, simply doesn't have uh, uh, much of a role uh, in uh, what goes on because of principles of federalism and so so forth. Um, now, what history has taught us, and I think it's crystal clear, is that left to their own devices, um, local police institutions have exercised their discretion in a way that's adverse to the interests of people of color and marginalized communities, and without uh, the federal government using its uh, enforcement powers to at least set floors, uh, then uh, we'd be uh, in a world of trouble. Uh, here's the tension, uh, though, uh, that, and I, here I'm conjuring up my former colleague, uh, Bill Stunts, uh, who unfortunately passed away, but it's a great political mind who argued that, uh, that to the degree that we localize uh, our criminal law, uh, we get better impact, uh, better effects. Uh, Here's what he was thinking, though. He was thinking that to the extent that these marginalized communities and communities of color that I talk about a lot um, have a seat at the table in, in, in creating the legislation and creating the penalties, that they would be much fairer 
much more fair to the extent those communities, as it's set up now, there are communities uh, of folks who make the laws tend not to live in the communities where the huge impact is. And what we do see, we've seen very recently, when the folk who make the laws, when they and their families are impacted by these laws, then the language changes. Uh, here I'm thinking of uh, heroin. Um, when heroin was a, a, a scourge of the uh, black and brown communities and so forth, uh, it was criminalized and people were thrown in jail for a very long time. Uh, when heroin came to impact um, majority communities around the country, the vocabulary changed almost instantly to a medicinal vocabulary as opposed to a punitive uh, vocabulary. And that's because their sons and daughters and cousins and so forth were impacted by, by this. And they began to un- let lawmakers began to understand uh, that, uh, that, you know, throwing people in jail isn't the answer. Rather, uh, we need to think about treatment and so forth. So that's, that's an idea of, or an, an example about how uh, localizing the criminal law can have positive impacts on uh, communities of color and, and disaffected communities around the country. Thanks. Thanks. We focused mostly on the administration and, and state and local governments, but what about Congress? For each of the issues, or, or for the issues in general that you've, you've all raised, is there one particular subject where federal legislation would be particularly welcome? Obviously, Congress doesn't pass as much legislation as it used to. Let's assume away the process of actually getting things passed. If you could just snap your finger and, 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 and enact a law out of Congress on any of these subjects, which, which subject would benefit the most from legislation? Uh, Gail? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's a tough question because most of what Congress does uh, is so ghastly. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, I have, have, have come to, 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 um, not get, you know, too overly excited about, about Congress, no matter which party, uh, how you can assume, you can assume that part away too. I mean, if you were able to, to, to write the law, which would be, what law would be most sort of welcome at this moment on the issues that you're talking about? Well, on the issues that I'm talking about, I would make it very clear, um, that Title VI rulemaking, um, is is um, limited, uh, and I do not believe that there is no authority on the part um, of the executive branch uh, to promulgate notice and comment regulations um, that have disparate impact liability uh, as their theme. But they can't do it in a way that is, you know, spread over all kinds of disparate impact liability. The problem with disparate impact is that basically everything has has a disparate impact on some racial group, some sex group, some national origin, or some religious group. I mean, disparate impact is ubiquitous. Um, And therefore, if you tell the the executive branch um, that it has the authority to pick and choose through guidances um, which disparate impacts um, matter most to it, that is a huge amount of arbitrary power. Uh, and that arbitrary power uh, is right now claimed um, by the executive branch with regard to Title VI and through Supreme Court opinions that, you know, really do allow. Ron, maybe we'll give you a chance to jump in. It looks like Gail's having a technical difficulty. Ron, if you were Congress for a day, uh, what what law would you pass? Power. Give me that. I, I will take that power. I would start 
I would start with some uh, real and effective and significant uh, gun laws. There's so much we can do to uh, reduce the number and severity of the types of guns that float around in, in the market. Uh, it could start with, uh, with with simple things like the sort of fingerprint uh, trigger locks. We've got all sorts of the technology now that we could use uh, to uh, so that a gun won't fire unless the owner's uh, fingerprint uh, is engaged. And then if that gun changes hands, you know, the new owner's fingerprint uh, will be the only thing to uh, the one to engage uh, that gun. Um, there could be uh, there's uh, technology now where bullets uh, can be electronically traced and not the junk ballistic science that we have now, but actual uh, science that could help uh, to uh, uh, trace uh, uh, certain where bullets are coming from. Um, we could close to bigger issues. We could close the gun show uh, uh, loophole, which is which is still uh, a, a, an enormous problem around the country. These uh, gun shows uh, uh, trade guns and essentially are these marketplaces where um, uh, through that are used to purchase and distribute uh, illegal uh, guns uh, in the sort of illegal marketplace. Obviously, not all of them, and that's not the uh, the entire purpose of them, but so many of the illegal weaponry that find their ways into black and brown communities across the country uh, originate from um, uh, from these uh, 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 gun shows. So I would uh, that that would be the first thing I would do. I would clean up uh, these 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 guns. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, crime would reduce precipitously and quickly if we didn't have so many uh, illegal firearms floating all around the country. Rachel. Uh, well, first, I want to point out that Professor Sullivan's comments on gun control would not only affect crime, but it would also affect policing. That one of the reasons police uses, uses of force happen is because police are afraid. And one of the reasons they're afraid is because people have guns. And so you could think of that as related to policing as well. Um, the broader issue, as an egg-headed academic, I am always reluctant, reluctant to endorse a silver bullet or say there's one answer. It's sort of against my nature. So I hate to do it. But if you said to me, you know, what should federal legislation look like if it passed tomorrow? I think there are 18,000 police departments in this country, and the, many of them are very, very small. They are unprepared to set the kinds of um, standards uh, that we would like and national standards on the use of force, national standards on data collection, national standards on accountability and transparency would be very helpful both to communities and to the departments themselves. And I would support that kind of legislation. Thanks. So my last question before I get to the audience questions is about the Supreme Court. Does the court looks a little different than it did a few years ago? President Trump appointed several justices. And so now the ideological balance of the court has shifted pretty significantly. How does the, the new Supreme Court fit into the issues that we're discussing today? What sort of an impact will, do you expect the justices to have, uh, if any, on the issues that we're talking about? Rachel, can we start with you? Sure. Um 
Interestingly, I think the Supreme Court has already, to a significant degree, stepped back from what used to be a more aggressive role in regulating the police. And so if you look at the Fourth Amendment um, law over the last several decades, it's playing already a a role that's permissive in ways that communities and states are unwilling to accept. And so other regulators are stepping in where the court has uh, stepped back. And I don't expect that to change. I think the one area that people are going to be interested in um, is qualified immunity. That's an area where uh, things could change. And I'm happy to talk more about that if if people are interested. Well, we we do have a question already from Devin Watkins, specifically asking whether qualified immunity should be abolished. Do you want to touch on that real quick, Rachel? And then I'll go to Ron on the the question about the court in general. Well, if the question is, uh, will qualified immunity be abolished? I think you have to think about that question in different parts. Um, Qualified immunity, as it exists today, is an interpretation that the court has Um, read into Section 1983, which is the primary statute that's used uh, to bring federal civil rights actions. Now, the court could uh, reinterpret the statute and it has expressed and several justices have expressed an, a willingness to do so. It might not overturn qualified immunity, but it already actually just in a decision this week, uh, reversing a lower court decision has is indicating, it, you know, it might instruct lower courts to uh, apply qualified immunity less aggressively than they have in the past. And so you might see qualified immunity change in the Supreme Court. But qualified immunity could equally be abolished by Congress in a statute, either by amending 1983, as the George Floyd uh, Act proposed to do, or by adding a new civil rights uh, damages uh, claim that would allow people to sue the police for excessive force, for example, without qualified immunity. And the third area of reform and qualified immunity is going to be states that increasingly expand their own civil damages actions available to potential plaintiffs who've been harmed by the police without qualified immunity. Colorado has already eliminated qualified immunity in its new civil rights claim, and other states are likely to follow that example. Rachel. Ron, any thoughts on, on, on the court generally and or on qualified immunity uh, specifically? Yeah, I, I would agree with Rachel 100% about the court. Uh, to my way of thinking, it's been fairly consistently bad on criminal justice issues for a long time and across uh, a number of, uh, of, 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 of spectrums ideologically. Uh, the Fourth Amendment is the immediate thing that, that came to mind uh, as well. And I think there's been uh, an, uh, there's an important acoustic issue here. Uh, if nearly every time a Fourth Amendment case comes before the court, it's resolved in favor of the police, lower courts will hear that whatever facts come before them, it will be okay to resolve in favor of police because the Supreme Court will affirm uh, that decision. So I think that's been the sort of um, uh, uh, the, the the acoustic uh, outcome of uh, of what the court has done uh, for a while. Uh, there's been some bright spots uh, over the years with uh, the Sixth Amendment. At least a few. Um, Justice uh, Scalia was 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 pretty good with respect to his Sixth Amendment. Uh, jurisprudence, but I, I don't hold out a lot of hope for the uh, uh, for the uh, 
uh, Supreme Court. And I'll, I'll, I'll just, uh, uh, it, it, everything Rachel said about qualified immunity, yes. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. Gail, any thoughts on the court? And well, you didn't touch on the subject yet. I know you've written and studied a lot on affirmative action. Uh, Ron's institution, Harvard University, has found itself in the middle of a lawsuit over affirmative action, and it's fared ver- the university's fared very well so far. But the Supreme Court might uh, might review the case, I suppose. Do you have any any thoughts on the court generally? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the, the court and affirmative action. Well, I received an email message this morning. Um, from students for, 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 for fair admissions. That is the organization that has been suing Harvard University uh, and arguing that Harvard University discriminates against Asian Americans uh, in its admissions. Uh, they have filed their petition for cert as of this morning. Um, and so, you know, we'll see what happens with that. Is that a case that they that the court is likely to take? You know, I don't feel sufficiently, um, you know, expert in the record in that particular case to have a firm opinion on whether or not they would they would be likely to take it. But it's interesting to note that that back in in 2003, um, when when Justice uh, O'Connor said that she believed that within 25 years, uh, racial preferences and admissions at the college and university level would no longer be necessary. Well, we're not quite at 25 years now, um, but we're getting we're getting close. Uh, we're getting close. We're well past the, the, the midpoint. Um, and the empirical studies that I have seen have shown uh, that racial preferences, um, rather than winding down, um, have at some schools increased. Um, and so you know, that's, that's bound to be something that the court uh, is interested um, in thinking about and deciding whether or not to take uh, this case. Um, one side of it that's very interesting, the Bostock decision last year, uh, as you'll recall, uh, the court decided um, that Title VII does indeed, um, does indeed protect against uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation um, and gender identity, uh, but they did it in a way that I, I would characterize as 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 hypertextual in the sense of saying, you know, for example, you know, if you have an individual who is anatomically male um, and is, you know, adopts the dress of females um, and isn't hired because of that, uh, he's being treated differently from a female who dresses in the way traditionally, you know, that, that women dress, and that that's sex discrimination. They're not saying that gender identity uh, itself um, is, is discrimination is outlawed. They're saying that's an occasion of sex discrimination. And Cass Sunstein wrote an article uh, right afterwards saying, you know, um, this kind of textual interpretation of Title VII is being celebrated right now, um, but, you know, that may simply be a signal that Justice Gorsuch would be very serious um, about um, race discrimination or sex discrimination um, that has been allowed by the courts um, as part of, 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 um, of diversity uh, and the pursuit of diversity. Um, and that, that hypertextual um, approach could come around and, and, and bite people um, who are in favor um, of race preferential admissions policies. So this case may be the opportunity for the court to, to, to look at that. Um, and if just Justice Gorsuch is, is consistent in the way that he applies 
Title VII, uh, if he's then consistent, you know, taking it over to Title VI, um, then you would expect him to say, hey, um, race preferential admissions, no matter how well-meaning, they're still violations of Title VI. So that's a possible uh, direction that the court could take. Um, and so we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, all we have right now is the cert petition itself. I haven't read it, uh, but we'll see. Um, we'll see, and we'll see what the amicus briefs look like uh, and see what the opposition looks like. Um, and maybe, just maybe, we'll have a case next year. Uh, Ron, Rachel, neither of you spoke on the affirmative action issue since I've sort of raised it late in this, this round of questions. Is, it anything that, is there anything there that you'd, either of you would like to speak to? Maybe I'll, folk, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll turn to another question now that comes from the audience. Um, we've had a couple of questions about uh, federal policy on drugs, the war on drugs. Um, both uh, Nita Gay and Leroy Frazier have asked about the effects of, of the war on drugs and the things we're discussing. How does that play into the issues that we're talking about? Obviously, obviously in terms of law enforcement and police, but also in terms of schools and so on. Uh, Ron, would you like to go first? Yes. So, so first I think we need to uh, get rid of these monikers like war on this and war on that. And that's part of the, the problem with uh, uh, policing and the sort of uh, soldier uh, the police uh, departments uh, acting like small armies. Uh, I believe it was Rachel mentioned uh, in her opening remarks uh, about all the military equipment and so forth that uh, has gone to uh, police departments, local police departments uh, across the country. And in, in my view has sort of encouraged uh, much more uh, militaristic uh, approach to, uh, to, to policing. So, um, uh, yes, uh, police departments and the federal government should share in the responsibilities of keeping uh, illegal drugs out of the country and out of, um, and out of, uh, communities. Uh, uh, but, uh, we, that duty, uh, does not confer carte blanche on police departments to violate uh, Fourth Amendment rights of, of citizens. And uh, there's been a, uh, an, a sort of implicit bargain uh, that we've seen around the country. Hey, if you want us to get rid of these drugs, uh, avert your eyes to the civil liberty violations that we see day in and day out uh, on the streets of America. And I think that's a, an unfortunate view, a bad trade-off, an unconstitutional uh, trade-off. And I think that uh, police departments can uh, walk and chew gum at the same time. That is, they can enforce uh, the drug laws and also uh, show a fidelity to the Constitution of the United States. Gail, do you have any thoughts on this? I don't know much about drug policy, um, so I could, I'm could. i probably best off keeping my mouth shut. All right. Rachel? Um, well, Professor Sullivan highlighted the ways in which uh, the war on drugs or drug policy can affect the legality of police actions and sometimes leading to unconstitutional actions. But when we're thinking about um, drug policy, we should also consider the costs of lawful police actions. So a lot of arrests, you know, Professor Sullivan at the beginning um, pointed to arrests as a source of um, uh, 
a lot of the harms of policing. And that's right. I actually wrote an article called Why Arrest a few years ago that argues that we could, even deciding that some crimes are, are worth pursuing, arrest far fewer people than we do today, and that the harms associated with arrests and the conflicts associated with them could be reduced as a result. Um, many, many arrests in this country are for very low-level drug crimes. We're talking about possession of, you know, less than a teaspoon of drugs. Um, and so that means that uh, we, when we make decisions about drug policies um, we, and the way we're going to enforce our drug laws, we're also making decisions about the harms and costs of policing over time. Um, we have a couple of questions in here about training, uh, the militarization of the police, the training that they receive. And I'm curious, again, focusing both on policing and on schools, what role uh, could the federal government have uh, in improving the quality of of the training of of teachers and police, and also on on their accountability? Ultimately, is this all something that really is best handled at the state uh, or local level, or is there a role for the federal government in improving the way that the teachers and police are, are trained to do their jobs? I, anybody want to take that I one could, first? I could start by saying that, that that President Biden has already signaled an intention. Um, in reinvigorating the cops office to devote $300 million um, to providing training and technical assistance, as well as funds to hire more police officers. And so I think there's no question that the Biden administration is going to be heavily involved in the project of police training, um, both training for de-escalation, training for to reduce racial disparities, um, and training in community policing and in, in less alienating policing. So I think this will be an area um, in which you can expect um, new funding. Now, now some communities find that uh, controversial, right? There, there are communities of color that say, uh, we don't want to spend more dollars on training police. We want to spend more dollars on reducing the scope of policing. And so you're going to see pushback, but I expect that there will be a substantial amount of new funding for police training. Um, Ron? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think um, providing resources for uh, training and robust training is is really uh, necessary, uh, and the federal government can play a, a huge role in that. Uh, the, the state and, and local governments can, uh, by and large, uh, determine the the, the content uh, of that training. I mean, obviously, subject to certain guidelines and, and so forth. But um, many uh, police departments are are under resourced and uh, training. Uh, particularly in uh, difficult areas of uh, de-escalation, uh, there just aren't uh, resources to do that. It's easy to slap cuffs on someone and, in some sense and throw them in the back of the police car, but it's uh, more difficult to recognize that the criminal law may be too blunt of an instrument to deal with a particular situation. Yeah. On teacher training, if we're talking about teacher training on school discipline, I don't think the federal role has been particularly productive. Um, I would prefer that, that, that training teachers on school discipline can be handled by national organizations, of which there, 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 there are many. Uh, but the federal government's interventions have tended to be counterproductive. So, too, was the federal government's intervention of providing money to have police officers in schools, uh, which I think has generally you know, been counterproductive. Um, that discipline is better handled uh, at a lower level in schools and not by, by, by the, the, the scary uh, object of, of, of 
police officers being present. If schools feel that they need a police officer present, there's nothing to prevent them from getting a police officer. Uh, but I would prefer that funding not be exclusively for that, uh, which has been the case in the past, where you know it's free money if you want a police officer on, on premises. But if you don't, um, then then you know you don't get anything. Um, so I think that's a mistake to federally fund these programs in that way. Um, and again, you know, there are some issues that are just better handled at the local level. Uh, sometimes there are abuses at the local level. Uh, that's what lawsuits are for. Um, and, you know, it's perfectly fine for the federal government to, to intervene in the extraordinary case. But with 300 jurisdictions being, being, um, being investigated by the Department of Education, um, in, you know, with regard to school discipline uh, during the Obama administration. Um, you know, it, it may sound great to people that, that are used to thinking of the federal government as, as, as being, you know, the, the, a font of wisdom. Um, but, you know, the reality is a little, little less happy. Um, and I think it's been quite counterproductive. I have a handful of questions focused really spe- on specific aspects of policing today. Harold Moss has asked about uh, militarization of the police, which we've touched on a little bit. Um, uh, David Jimenez asks whether uh, pattern and practice strategies in the police force should be reformed. And is this a place where where, where the, a federal role could, could gain some Republican support? And then we have an anonymous question um, about civil asset forfeiture and the state of civil asset forfeiture and modern law enforcement. Ron, Rachel, would you like to touch on any of those uh, subjects? I know we've, we've sort of touched on them, a l- many of them a little bit, but is there anything further you'd like to add on any of those? Uh, sure, I can start off in terms of uh, uh, forfeiture. I, I, I don't know that we've talked a lot about uh, forfeiture. Uh, it, uh, too, has been a uh, tool that has been, in my opinion, abused uh, by uh, prosecutors and used uh, in many circumstances to uh, effectively prevent uh, the accused from uh, staging a, a, a vigorous defense and getting an attorney uh, of uh, his or her choice. And um, uh, so I think there's a scope question there with respect to forfeiture and that um, that that scope uh, uh, needs to be uh, restricted. Um, it also speaks again to uh, the question of, of uh, prosecutorial discretion and when prosecutors decide to uh, forfeit uh, property. Uh, and the Supreme Court has uh, effectively punted on the issue of prosecutorial discretion for a very long time. And you know, we gives us, gives us cases like Bordenkircher and so forth, uh, where there's this vast discretion to do all sorts of things, including um, uh, starting forfeiture processes. So that's something that we have to uh, to, to look at. Uh, pattern and practice, uh, to the extent, I didn't see the question in print, to the, to, to the extent, not that it's not there, I just didn't, didn't see it. Uh, to the extent that the questioner is, is talking about the uh, uh, basis for relief uh, pattern and practice cases around the country, that's, that's certainly an important tool in federal litigation uh, when you're looking at particular police uh, um, uh, misconduct cases. So I, I think that that's um, a, 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 a theory that, that needs to be uh, preserved. But I'm not wasn't quite sure of the specific content of that that question. 
Well, let me, it's a short question. Let me read it so I don't butcher it here. Uh, it's from David asks, what are changes to pattern and pat- practice strategy that you would recommend? Can some po- Could some potentially help this federal power gain more Republican or law enforcement support? I'm not quite sure about the last part of that. I could I could speak to this a little bit. Um, Please, I think I think what the uh, questioner is referring to is the civil rights division's pattern or practice suits lawsuits under a federal statute, uh, 42 USC. It's now 12601. It's recently be re- been renumbered um, against local police departments for a pattern or practice of constitutional violations, um, and those suits. Um, can seek and do seek equitable relief, which is to say often injunctions or substantial reforms in police departments. And that litigation has been, it was uh, created as part of the 94 crime bill. It's been controversial since its origins. Um, uh, But the Trump administration um, largely uh, ended new investigations and settlements with ongoing in in ongoing investigations in that area. And that is something that the Biden administration has signaled and inevitably will um, revitalize. So then the question is, well, what strategies does it take? You know, one of the things about this area, first of all, the, some of the nominees uh, that Biden has already announced in the Justice Department are deeply familiar with this area, in particular, Vinita Gupta, who is the uh, a nominee for assistant attorney general was previously the assistant, the the associate attorney general was previously the assistant attorney general for the civil rights division. Um, So she knows a lot about these suits and I think she will be uh, influential in the, in the restart of this program. Um, You know, we've learned some lessons from our past experience with this program. And it's one that has been continually refined over time. I think the large, to a significant extent, shutdown of the program actually creates an opportunity for us to rethink some of the strategies. I think there are some things we'll clearly continue to do, but for example, the administration might consider bringing small lawsuits around very, very specific areas like chokeholds um, to set some national standards. Because one of the things in the absence of other national standards is that law enforcement agencies have looked to the settlements in these suits for advice about reform, and they could be strategically used to influence local police policy. Is that kind of strategy or other strategies in pattern or practice litigation likely to get a lot of law enforcement or Republican support? No, I I don't think so. I think um, one alternative that the Obama administration developed was for law enforcement agencies to be able to seek technical assistance from the cop's office to help reform in areas that might otherwise trigger a pattern or practice uh, lawsuit. And I expect that program will also restart, which will help some law enforcement agencies. And that was very popular with law enforcement agencies. They were disappointed when the program was shut down. And I expect there you'll see a lot more support. David added in a follow-up question. He's, he pointed specifically to the issue of consent decrees and 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 the ways in which those. He mentions consent decrees, which I take to mean the ways in which the lawsuits might resolve in 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 consent decrees that then be administered by by the federal courts to ensure compliance. Um, let me end with two big picture questions again. Uh, 
The first has to do with sort of the state of politics around the issues we've discussed today. Obviously, a lot of the issues we've talked about, they've increasingly have crossed um, sort of old political lines. We see political categories or, or alliances being scrambled a little bit. And in this current era, again, new administration, new Congress, and the new politics that'll surround it, are there any particular stakeholder groups that are maybe rising to a more prominent um, place in these debates than we've seen in the past? I mean, the debate, the issues, let me elaborate, the issues that we were talking about today, they're not new issues. They've been around for a very, very long time. And so it's, I think, very easy to settle back and just assume particular political coalitions around issues. Maybe that's right. But on the other hand, maybe there are stakeholder groups that are becoming more activated on these issues. Um, do you see any in the issues that you work on of of groups, communities that you you see as having a, a louder voice in the next few years in these debates? Yes, I know it's a question kind of out of nowhere, so I'm sorry about that, but I'm I'm just curious. Maybe Gail? Yeah, I certainly see that. Um and the the the, the group that I see taking a much more prominent role uh in civil rights issues is Asian Americans. Uh we're seeing that in the Harvard case, uh where Asian Americans in particular um, are, are, are behind the lawsuit. Um, and the argument is that Asian Americans in particular are being discriminated against, um, by colleges and universities at the admissions level. Um, and it's not just in, in, in that issue in particular and that lawsuit in particular. Um, I co-chaired the, the, um, Proposition 209 campaign, uh, in California way back in 1996. And that was an initiative that would have, have, um, and did, prohibit um, discrimination or preferential treatment uh, based on race, sex, color, ethnicity, uh, or, or, um, or national origin in the operation of public contracting, public, um, public employment, and public education. And interestingly, although very much it was so at the time that race preferential admissions at the University of California were hurting Asian, Asian Americans in California, there was not very much participation by Asian Americans in that campaign. But in the campaign this past year uh, against Proposition 16, which would have uh, repealed Proposition 209, um, the volunteer effort by Asian Americans was just astonishing. Um, you know, there were thousands and thousands and thousands um, of people who would walk through fire uh, to make sure that Prop 16 uh, did not, did not, you know, did not pass. So Asian Americans were extremely prominent uh, in that campaign. They are extremely prominent um, in the, the, the new organizations that are forming here in California, not just in dealing with, with things like admissions policies, uh, but also ethnic studies uh, issues at the K through 12 level, uh, which they believe have been too politicized. Um, and so Asian Americans are really becoming very, very prominent uh, in civil rights issues. The same thing was seen in Washington State back in 2019, where again, there was an effort by the Washington State Legislature uh, to repeal the initiative that had passed back in 1998 um, that was similar to Proposition 209. Uh, it outlaws um, discrimination and preferential treatment based on race, sex, color, uh, ethnicity, and so on. Um, and so very much so, there has been a, a real sea change on the West Coast um, and also nationally uh, with regard to Asian American uh, interest in these issues. 
Ron, Rachel, obviously on issues of policing and law enforcement, Black Lives Matter has been has become such a huge force in, in national politics and the national debate. And so, of course, they've really risen to the forefront of all of this. Are there are there other groups uh, that 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 you see as becoming more and more engaged publicly on the issues that you've talked about? Well, that's actually the group that I was going to to, to mention uh, uh, because well, go ahead, go ahead, be, be, and and I'll just add a little. Um, uh, I was going to say a little color to it, but no no pun intended. There is um, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement is is uh, that we saw this summer is actually uh, I would describe as a group of young people, a multiracial, multi ethnic group of young people that coalesced around the Black Lives Matter uh, matters banner, and uh, they really injected new vocabularies into the conversation. Indeed, uh, this was considered the largest mass movement of the country's uh, history, even surpassing the, the Garvian uh, movement uh, in, the, in, in the 60s in terms of numbers uh, and made quite an impact. And I think they're going to continue to, um, you know, push uh, old people like me uh, and uh, force uh, conversations in in areas where we hadn't thought a lot about before. So, you know, we mentioned like um, the, the term defunding the police is part of national conversations now because of these uh, young people uh, forcing the issue. And I don't think that we've heard the last of them yet. I, I agree with Professor Sullivan about this entirely. I think activists and especially activists of color, African-American activists are going to be sitting at the table um, in a way in the new administration in a way that even uh, they haven't before to the same degree. Um, I think that's inevitable. And I think it's going to be inject new life. I mean, you could see this in Cori Bush's election to Congress. She got her start on the streets in Ferguson after uh, Michael Brown was killed and is now sitting in Congress. I think you're going to see um, activists taking um, a, a more vocal role, and that's going to change the nature of the conversation. Um, but I guess I would be remiss to point out that not everything in policing is a matter of disagreement. There are a lot of issues on which there is really widespread agreement in policing, and in particular, one that the activists have drawn a lot of attention to this past summer, which is changing the scope of policing. You know, law enforcement um, officials, both chiefs and officers, as well as uh, activists and communities think that a lot of uh, problems should be dealt with by other first responders or should not be uh, treated as a law enforcement issue. And so I think one of the things you're going to see is some uh, agreement and consensus on ways forward uh, that is, is going to also push the national conversation. Thanks. Maybe we'll have one last question and uh, we'll do it in, in reverse order of the way we started all of this. So we'll start with Gail. Um, during the conversation at one point, I chuckled when Rachel referred to the egghead academics. Um, one of, the, one of the, the things that we particularly liked in building this panel discussion is that all three of our speakers, they're, they're in academia, but they've also had experience in government or advising government officials, Gail on the Civil Rights Commission, Rachel on the Justice Department, and Ron as an advisor to uh, to then Senator and, and President-elect Obama on these issues. So your own expertise and perspective on this is informed by both the theory and just the practice of governance. Um, what do you think just the, not to 
not, not to cast aspersions on your sort of strictly academic colleagues, but what do you think, uh, what, what do you think the sort of pure academics miss um, when they haven't seen these issues from inside of government? Was there anything that's lost sort of by not having direct practice in these issues? Again, I don't I hate to ask you to pick on your colleagues, but just given that you all have this background both in academia and in real practice, I can't, I can't help but ask. Gail? It's romantic about the, the federal government's wisdom if you've actually been on the inside of a federal agency. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do sometimes tease my colleagues uh, who, who, you know, are, are more on the theoretical side. Uh, and one of the things you have to tease people about, because it's true, is what I was talking about when I was talking about school discipline, that the notion that, that you know, the law as it's, it's created uh, by, by federal officials um, or, you know, suggested by academics can sound so very reasonable um, until you see how it, it filters down uh, to the people who actually have to make the decisions. You know, with school discipline, you know, you tell them, uh, you tell the school districts um, that they, they, they can only punish minority students, you know, when doing so is you know, necessary and justified. And that sounds okay, you know, justified. That sounds good. But by the time it reaches the teachers, it's like we're going to get in a heap of trouble uh, if our numbers aren't, aren't made to look just the way they should. Um, and that's when you start getting, getting, you know, the reports back from the, from the, from the actual teachers that, Students are being discriminated against, but not in the way you think. It's, you know, the Asian student, they're going out of their way to punish an Asian student um, who has done something minor because they want to make sure the numbers look good. Um, and, you know, the truth is there's a lot of activity up and down the, the, the bureaucracy um, about trying to make numbers look good. Um, and that's not always the way um, to, to, to do justice. Uh, it might look like justice when the numbers are reported back, uh, but if you know the actual facts, um, it doesn't look so great. Um, so. Thanks, Gail, and thanks again for joining us today. Rachel, maybe the simpler way to ask the question would have just been, how has your perspective benefited from, from your time in government? Uh, well, I think both my work in the Civil Rights Division and my work with law enforcement and with nonprofits who are trying to intervene in these issues or reform um, are help me pay attention to institutional features of these questions. But I actually wouldn't diss um, academics who don't come from that experience because I think one of the things that our students benefit from and research benefits from is a diversity of perspectives on these questions. And sometimes coming from the real world, you get very limited in what you think are possible answers. And if we've seen anything this year, we've seen that the range of possible realistic answers is always bigger than we think it is in any given moment. And so I actually think it helps our students and it helps research to have both. Great. Thanks, Rachel. And thanks again for joining us. Today. Thank you for having me. Ron, you'll get the last word. Your, your practical experience hasn't been limited just to government. Of course, you've been in the middle of a lot of private litigation on the defense side and, and, and in general. Any, any final thoughts on, on your perspective on these issues and, and what you've gleaned from working in practice in addition to in theory? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that uh, the practice side provides a clarifying gloss that helps uh, crystallize a set of issues and, and, and helps uh, me think through these issues on the academic side. 
but like both of my colleagues, I think uh, each reinforces uh, the other. Uh, for me, uh, they are both uh, necessary. Uh, I wouldn't want to do simply modeling, though there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I like uh, uh, my colleagues, I'm not, I, I wouldn't diss any of my colleagues who really um, get super excited about uh, pure theory and and, and pure abstractions, but uh, but getting your hands a little dirty and, and getting uh, into uh, the, the the these systems that we write about and teach about um, really help to provide a uh, perspective that uh, I think is impossible uh, to know. Uh, you know, sitting here in my my office, you know, they, some of these things just aren't in these books uh, behind me and. Uh, and, and, and sort of getting out on the ground, dealing with uh, concrete people and issues that impact their lives uh, really enhance uh, uh, what I do in the classroom. Well, thanks, Ron. Thanks again for joining us. Um, just a closing observation. We've spoken a lot today in this conversation on policing. And quite frankly, that's not a subject that the Gray Center has touched on before. Uh, oftentimes, we don't tend to think of law enforcement and criminal law, the same sort of conversation of administrative law, which really is sort of the core of what we do here at the Gray Center. But of course, there are scholars who bridge that gap, including Rachel Barco at Columbia and others. And looking back into the history of administrative law, some of the sort of founding figures in in the modern study of administrative law in bureaucracy. Here I'm thinking of both Kenneth, Kenneth Culp Davis, a founding father of administrative law, who also wrote on police and on discretionary justice. James Q. Wilson famously wrote on bureaucracy, but before he wrote on bureaucracy as a whole, he was writing about police and his study of varieties of police behavior. Uh, this is an issue that the, the Gray Center really is going to prioritize in the years ahead focusing on what we can learn in both directions, what administrative law scholars can learn from those who study policing and law enforcement and in the other direction. And so we're looking forward to organizing more conversations like this, uh, roundtables and, conversa- and conferences and more. And so I'm so grateful to our panelists today for beginning this conversation at the Gray Center on the issue of policing and, and much, much more. So thanks again to all of our speakers. Thanks to our audience especially David Jimenez, whose question I butchered twice. Sorry about that, David. But I hope our audience will join us again for the last in this series. Two weeks from now, we'll be focusing on a very different subject, financial regulation and the new Biden administration and the new Congress. Look for announcements on that and please do sign up. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us and we're adjourned.